I'm Chris Biddle and thank you for joining me for episode 91 of Inside AgriTurf and to an episode that reflects one of my lifelong passions. This year marks the 60th anniversary of my membership of the Marlebone Cricket Club, the MCC, the world's most famous active cricket club, the guardian of the laws of the game and the owner of Lord's Cricket Ground in London, the home of cricket. The club's standout colours of red and yellow are immediately recognisable and the waiting list to gain full membership is currently approaching 30 years. When I joined in 1963, I did so by playing a number of matches for the club, after which membership was much more rapid. For lovers of cricket, Lords is the spiritual home of the game and it remains the ultimate ambition for cricketers across the world to walk through the historic long room, down the pavilion steps, and onto what is commonly regarded as the hallowed turf. Today, I'm joined by the man responsible for the upkeep and preparation of the playing surfaces and outfield at the home of cricket. Carl McDermott, the MCC head groundsman, is now preparing for his fifth season in charge. I always like to compare those who prepare cricket grounds and indeed other major sports venues as stage managers. For the aesthetic look of the ground, the perfectly uniform stripes in the outfield are there to provide spectators and TV audiences with the wow factor. So Carl, many thanks for joining me and perhaps we could go back to the beginning. You grew up in Ireland and spent your formative years at Clontarf Cricket Club near Dublin, but did you know during your school days what you really wanted to do in later life? Actually, I think I'm now approaching my 34th season as a cricket groundsman, which which makes me sound old. It makes me <laughs> makes me feel old. So uh, when I was about 14, my um, my maths teacher, who was the groundsman at the cricket club, was looking for someone to give him a hand, uh, a couple of young kids to give him a hand. As obviously, you know, he was getting on a bit and he just wanted some young blood in to give him, give him some help. Now, being the fact I'd only lived about a mile away from the cricket club and I went past it every day to the tennis club, I'd never set foot inside the grounds. So he was looking for someone that didn't play cricket because back in the day, our, our summer holidays were three months long over in Ireland. So there was no schools cricket, so to speak. It was all in the club. So. The, the club was a hub for all the young kids in the area who play cricket and it was, it was like uh, a really safe place to be for all for all the young lads. He was looking for somebody who didn't play cricket because it takes up so much time. So I was one of those three that he took on that year, really, and with two other my good friends. Uh, I think he thought all three wouldn't keep it up, and he he was right, and I was the only one that did. And you were there for some years, but you you must have had um, as time got on, you must have been fairly ambitious because I think you you took yourself off to South Africa and to Australia. Uh, during the winter, how did those arrangements come about, Carl? Well, I, I, w- I was lucky, really. To sort of answer your first question, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I left school. I sort of always wanted to be involved in sport and possibly be a PE teacher or something like that. Um, but as cricket grew and my sort of love for cricket groundsmanship grew, and the old groundsman retired, you know, the club kept me on during the summer, and I, I was sort of I became head groundsman at a reasonably young age. Uh, he was still around helping me out. But Irish cricket was growing. It was great at the time. Um, opportunities came my way and I was just lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Um, my first trip to South Africa, 
Ireland Under-19 World Cup was on out there, the Cricket World Cup, and a couple of the old boys in the club went over to support some guys that we had in the team. And by chance, the school uh, they played at in uh, Johannesburg had an Irish headmaster. So, yes, so one of the old guys got chatting to him and he said, oh, send your groundsman over in the in the winter, their summer. And uh, we look after him and give him a bit of experience, really. So that was how my first opportunity came around, uh, just by luck and then by sort of having the bravery to go myself because I'd never been away on my own, let alone that far in the world. And I was quite a shy young young man, really. So I was looked after really well over there at a Christian Brothers School in Boxburg, and uh, it was it was a great time, and not not more so from a personal point of view than a grounds point of view, really. And uh, you you must have made some nice contacts over there, and uh, presumably also learnt um, about uh, conditions of looking after pitches in in South Africa that possibly were di- was different to to Ireland. Yeah, very much. So I ended up doing two winters over there in the same school. They looked after me really well. And as time went on, I, be- I got more hands-on experience, which was great. And it's totally different world with obviously the yeah. soils and the weather. And then I just sort of got lucky again with, with Irish cricket growing again. As I say, I just bumped into people and, and put myself in a position where I might be offered opportunities to, to travel in the winter. Cause at the time, the club only employed me during the summer months. So it was a time filler in one way for me as well. And you got to Australia as well? Got to Australia. Uh, Again, completely by chance. Uh, Daryl Hare was, remember the ex-Australian yeah. umpire? He was doing a tour of Europe and Ireland uh, promoting umpiring. And he was at Clontar for, uh, I can't remember, a week maybe or so doing um, training sessions and things like that for umpires. And I got to know him quite well. And he said, if you're ever in Australia, drop me a line. I'll get you a gig somewhere. So my friends were going over doing the year traveling thing. And I said, oh, I'll come with you for a little while. I think I'd blown all my money in about two weeks. So I uh, I dropped him a postcard to the SCG and um, and he got back to me and said, I have, op- I have an opportunity for you. Yeah, you could either go to the SCG or work at uh, Mosman Cricket Club that he knew an old umpire. And uh, I got involved with him, really, and it was a fantastic experience. So, so Carl, um, all this must have made you ambitious to further your career then did you always have an ambition to get into the county game i think i think i did um i was lucky in the position at clontarf where they hosted uh some county fixtures uh like benson and hedges cup cng trophy and things like that when ireland were in the competition so that gave me an insight to sort of professional cricket so to speak and also the club uh always hosted the touring team uh, as a training camp, hashtag jolly, probably for the, the players, <laughs> Australia, South Africa, West Indies. It was always our first stop in Dublin on the way to the UK. So uh, working in those environments gave me ambition. And in 1999, the club hosted a World Cup game with uh, West Indies playing Bangladesh. And that was probably my eureka moment thinking, uh, you know, I really want to go and work in the UK. And test cricket was really the ambition for me. Uh, of course, and and you 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 landed up um, here initially at at Worcester, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think two thousand and eight, maybe. You you took um, your waders with you, did you? I took my waders. We only had three floods that year, so they said it was a quiet year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great experience, great ground. I'd I'd been knocking on the doors for a few years to try and get over, and opportunities didn't go my way. But I think everything happens for a reason. And Tim took me on, and I joined the ground staff at Worcester, and you know it was a really good stepping stone for me a really good start uh and a great insight to professional groundsmanship 
and then the next step was um, at Hampshire, where I guess you must have taken over from Nigel Gray, did you? I did. So at the end of my first year at Worcester, a couple of jobs came up for deputy positions at test grounds. And while I didn't want to leave Worcester after such a short time, but I think these opportunities never came up that often. So, um, yeah, I put my hat in the ring and I was lucky enough to get offered the Hampshire job which is really good because Nigel was really looking to the end of his career at that point. And obviously Hampshire was building the new stands and then the hotel. And it was quite exciting with their first test match coming up and things like that. So it was a good opportunity for me. And with Nigel looking to retire and if things obviously worked out, there was a succession plan, which was great. Great. And so the ultimate eureka moment must have must have come when the the role at Lords came up. Lords is the pinnacle, I guess, for for every every UK groundsman certainly, uh, and possibly worldwide groundsman as well. And you hadn't been at Hampshire very long. Did you did need, need second thoughts as far as you were concerned? No, no, I don't. I don't think so. Um, I think I never remember. But my friends always say when I was young, I always used to joke about being the groundsman at Lords one day. And I always thought Clontarf was the Lords of Ireland. You know, I treated it that way. It was, it was, it was funny. But I think once the Lords, Mick was going to retire, you're only, I was only over going to get one chance to go for it really in a lifetime. And a couple of names were bandied about. And I was probably, you're right. I was probably the least experienced of, of most of the younger guys that are on the circuit at the moment, but not by much. And things have gone well. Hampshire, obviously the pitches had come really good in the last number of years. And, I had a really good test match with India and, and England at the Aegeus Bowl just before the interview. And I don't know, I must have come across reasonably well at, at, at the first interview stage anyway. And so you, you, you got the, the role at Lords. Did you have much time with Mick, Mick Hunt? I mean, Mick had been at Lords for 49 years. I mean, and I think he'd been head groundsman since 1984. And there was hardly a just of grass that he didn't know at, at, at Lords. So how long did you have with him and, 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 and how useful? Obviously, it was useful to, to pick his brains on, on the quirks and the individual characteristics of uh, the home of cricket. Yeah, so I got, I think... Uh, I got the job mid-September time, I think, if I remember rightly. And uh, I popped up in October when the renovation works were going on and stuff like that and, and met Mick. And I'd met Mick a couple of times at various meetings, but you look at him, you know, he was he was the pinnacle. He was like the godfather. And being a younger groundsman, you never really approached him that much at those kind of meetings because uh, you sort of had the fear. But listen, he's a very approachable guy. He He was brilliant from the first day. He was you know, delighted that I got the opportunity and uh, I officially started on the 1st of December. So, and he was finishing on the 31st of December. So we had a month together, really. But I was obviously winding up and he was winding down. So I was badgering him every day with questions and questions. (laughs) And uh, God knows what he thought of me in, in the background, but really, really helpful. But really, he said, listen, this is, you know what you're doing. This is your baby now. And, you know, I'm handing it over to you and it's up to you what you do now. But I think working the first year with a fairly senior team as well, that was really beneficial. So uh, Mick is always at the end of the phone when I never need him. I actually spoke to him last week as well. Well, as far as major matches concerned, in 2019, your first season, you you didn't half cop them, didn't you? I mean, um, a World Cup final... (laughs) For goodness sake. Yeah, it was um, real, an Ash, Ashes series uh, and a yeah. match against Ireland, which yeah. must have been a bit special. Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of that season, you look back on it, what, what were you thinking? What Was it was it sinking in? 
I think I think when you look back on it, you you look back more with pride now. But but during the time, uh, you're just sort of living through it. And you know, I always tell people at Lords, I think it's great, but you're always looking towards the next match here, and the next match always is a big one here. You know, there's no real downtimes, and uh, every game is nearly a major fixture, and and we treat it that way. But on reflection now, you look back and you're you're immensely proud to obviously the World Cup final. Uh, and you know one of the greatest games that uh, that ever took place. Uh, although my nerves would probably say I would have preferred the first team to get four hundred, and it didn't matter what the second team got. <laughs> but um, yeah, listen, I don't know how many World Cup finals I'll ever produce pitches for. You know, maybe maybe one more. But uh, it's, it was an amazing experience, and just the atmosphere that day at Lords was something special, indeed. And from that, of course, and from that incredible high, within three months, you were. Working at Lords on your own, cutting the ground on your own, working uh, completely in isolation. Uh, what was that like, Carl? That must have been a very strange uh, time. Very, very strange. I think I was really looking forward to the second year because, you know, we were the first year on pitches. It takes a while to, to learn about cricket pitches and venues. And I was really looking forward to the second year and getting my teeth stuck into it and really making my uh, my mark and putting my own stamp on things. And then obviously we had lockdown. We were just so uncertain, like everybody, you know, what, what is going to happen? We never thought we wouldn't see each other for, you know, weeks upon weeks. But we always planned to be cricket ready within two weeks. And whether I was on my own or my deputy then joined me to work on the nursery ground, um, we always managed to keep the ground uh, together. But, you know, part of me, it was a really unique time. And we had we were lucky we had the four walls of Lords keeping us in and plenty of space. And um, but it got lonely. It did. I'll, I'll admit that. And. You know, you felt like you were just a grass cutter at times and it was very repetitive. And um, at times, you know, as a group of head groundsmen, we we kept in touch with each other a lot. And that sort of helped everybody through that that difficult time because everybody was working alone. And at one point, you never thought it was going to end. And and I think you, you had the an, an addition to the family during that time. So that, that must have uh, helped uh, even out your, your feelings and your emotions at the time. Yeah, it did. We had our, our first child was born the previous October. So she was in six, seven months. Um, yeah, and we did things that you could never do at Lords. We had the paddling pool out in the nursing ground and things like that during the hot weather. We'll never do that again. No. So, you know, it was great to spend that time together because obviously I wasn't working all airs like you do during a normal cricket season so uh it was fantastic sure so so your team at uh at lords what 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 sort of full-time uh staff have you got and how do you augment that during uh during the summer or during big matches yeah so full-time including me we've got a full-time staff of five and hmm. um, most have been here quite a while um our most senior member's been here i think he's in his 31st year on the staff um and the others are down to sort of 15 years down to, you know, they're pushing on to eight, nine years now. So uh, they know the site very well. And then we try and get another three summer workers in, you know, for six months during the, during the season to help out with all the other fixtures. And we've also just advertised for an apprentice as well. So I'm hoping we get uh, a really good guy that really wants to learn and, and do his apprenticeship here. So all being well, we could be up to nine this year. You, you you hail from Ireland, obviously, so you, you're used to weather with a capital W, and of course weather plays an enormous part in uh, in in cricket in cricket pitch proper preparation, and you always used to see Mick looking for where the weather was coming from. I mean, you will use apps um, and all the technology that you can at your fingertips, but is there any substitution for getting a sort of feel for the weather, rather like a farmer? 
Well, I don't, I don't think so. I think, um, apps are great and, uh, they do predict things, but sometimes they do get things wrong. And, uh, I've also found London, things are quite localized. So you, you sort of see the cloud coming and then all of a sudden it, it, it nips around you. So with experience, but unfortunately the stands are getting higher and higher. So you can't see that far anymore, but with experience, you, you can sort of tell now, but with obviously day night cricket and you, you can't see much in the dark. You're very, you are very heavily reliant on these apps and uh, making sure you get things right. And, and um, after you spent all the time on on precise preparation of the pitch for either county game, a test match, or any game played at Lords, are you able to predict with any certainty how that pitch will play? You know, I think we always are in a position where we know what preparation has gone into a pitch, and you know the weather and and things that have gone for or against you. So I would never stand up on a pedestal and say it's going to be an absolute belter or I'd be really worried about it. Um, I've never been overly worried about a pitch I've prepared. So you're always hopeful. But I think with experience, you're uh, you're very wary of what you say to uh, a player or a coach as well, or certainly someone in the media, because that does snowball quite quickly and uh, could kick you up the bum at sometimes. And, and turf management is is changing and um, we've now got um hybrid pitches used quite uh, uh commonly across uh, soccer football and and rugby and so on and of course we've now got hybrid cricket pitches and uh, th- that's uh, uh, natural grass um sort of interwoven with plastic artificial strips um do you have one pitch is that right at lords that is hybrid no. Yeah, so before I came, we had two pitches, one on the nursery ground and one on the very edge of the square. And since I've been here, we've installed another three. So mostly what you use, obviously, for limited overs cricket, be it the 100 or the T20 Blast. You're right. These th- thing, things are moving very, very quickly with, uh, you know, modern technology and things like that. And the aim of the hybrid pitches are to give you a better pitch, second and third use because of the demands on cricket grounds nowadays and having to reuse pitches and the number of fixtures and obviously the intensity that uh, the focus is on where we want to use our best tools possible to make sure if we have to use re-pitches, they're as good as they possibly can be. Uh, and we all know about um, those in the cricket world that love Lords all know about it's the extraordinary slope that runs from the, uh, from the pitch area right down to the uh, grand, st- oh, mound stand. Mound stand. It, does that alter the way you prepare the pitch at all? I mean, obviously, batsmen have to get used to it, but do you have to get used to it as a um, as a, as a groundsman? Yeah, ma- massively. Uh, it's something I never really thought about before I came here. Obviously, I'd never stepped on the ground until I got the job, and you do feel yourself leaning over a bit when you're standing in the middle looking at the pavilion. But and you never thought about it. Obviously, when you water, water runs downhill. So watering an individual pitch or an area is is a lot more challenging here. Whereas if you're on a flatter square like we were in Hampshire, I could you get it done in a day. Here it takes three to four days to get the water in. So it's something you got to think about. And also where the pitches are, you always got to make sure your next pitch under preparation is below the one you're playing on so the water doesn't run onto it. So uh, it is a challenge. Uh, and setting out the pitch plan before the year starts, you know, takes some time. I know from Mick's days, Mick Hunt's days, that there's always a, a great deal of trialling of various pitches going on at, at Lords, and, and the hybrid pitches, I guess, was one one of those. Uh, but I was also there, and um, I watched the preparation of a, of a drop-in pitch. But I do understand, and obviously they are used in, in football stadiums and in Australia and the like, which are multi-use, uh, which Lords isn't, of course. 
has any sort of thought about that being abandoned? I, I understand that that actually the real issue is is the weight of the carrier getting it across the ground and putting it in place. Should that ever be the case? Yeah, there's there's various factors that go into putting a a, um, a drop in pitch in and out of the ground, and I think that sometimes there's a bit of a misconception that you could prepare it out the back and then just drop it in and play on it the next day. Aside from the size of the machinery that needs to get it in, and for anyone interested on YouTube, you'll, I think if you Google drop in pitches MCG or something, there's a fantastic video showing it. But when you lift the tray, it does naturally bend. So, um, if you imagine a prepared pitch and it then bends when you lift it, it could potentially crack. With us being single use stadium, there's not a huge demand at the moment. Um, but I think it will come up again in the future. And as I say, technology changes so quickly that there might be a lighter, quicker, easier way to get pitches in and out. And we want to be leaders in, in technology. So we're always looking at things and discussing things to, to move the game forward. I hope you are enjoying this fascinating chat with Carl McDermott, the head groundsman at Lord's Cricket Ground, the home of cricket. And talking about progressive turf management, I now wanted to know about the huge project undertaken during the winter of 2002 to completely dig up and replace the outfield which sat on dense London clay. Now, if it rained hard, puddles soon formed and many hours, indeed days of play, were lost previously. In a mammoth operation, the clay was removed to a depth of around 30 centimetres and taken away in a convoy of lorries which were subject to strict movement limits to avoid complaints from the residents of this upmarket area of London. The outfield was then filled with a mix of sand and gravel. New drains installed and specially grown new turf was laid. This was obviously before Carl's arrival, but um, how did he view that uh, significant upgrade to the ground? I think, again, that was probably another big eye-opener here for me in how to deal with an outfield that drains so well. So even feeding it and treating it, you know, everything goes through it a lot quicker in terms of fertilisers or anything we put on the ground. So whereas before you might get away with four or six weeks feeding, now we're doing it every two weeks because it all leaches through the sand. But, you know, that's not a bad uh, problem. The fact that we know it rains and we can get out there within an hour or so um, is an unbelievable asset for me to have. And as you say, back in the, I think it was a million pounds 20 years ago. You know, if you save one test match day, it's paid for itself. So we're hopefully going through a similar thing on the nursery ground because that is the old London clay on there at the moment. And we're just putting proposals together to do some, not maybe not something as fancy, but certainly something that's more suitable for uh, cricket. When I was coming to, when I was watching that work going on, the, the, one of the consultants from the SGRI, the Sports Turf Research Institute, said to me, he said, Chris, you'll, you'll see something here that will so- knock your socks off when you see it under four. And it happened about five or six years later, it was a test match against India. There was something like two inches of rain in an hour, um, just about early morning. And I'd actually gone back to home. I normally stay up. I'd gone back home and I drove back up and my friends, came on the phone and said, well, we're leaving. So I thought, well, I'll go anyway. And they were playing by lunchtime. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I didn't, when I started, I didn't believe the guys here in my team were saying, oh, don't worry, don't worry, the water will go. And I'm I'm batting down the hatches and putting bits to keep water on the sheets and things. And with time, I said, no, it is true. It it, it truly is amazing. And, um, you know, it's a, it is a total game changer for us. 
Uh, absolutely. And as you say, in terms of financial gain, I, I seem to remember that the head of cricket at that time said, we only need to save one test match and yeah. we've we've paid for it. Yeah. Talking about playability, do you do you talk to the players about um, how the pitch is is behaving during the game? Uh, at times I do, and and coaches and umpires, and obviously there's now match referees that we we would talk to every day. Um, I do try and watch quite a bit as well, so I'm obviously wary of I have, might have one opinion and a player might have another, for example. <laughs> but well, you know, we're, I'm quite honest with myself, and I'd like people to be honest with me and. It's always good to get feedback because I think if you rest on your laurels, you're not really moving forward. And, you know, there's never a perfect pitch. You know, it can always be a little bit better, even if it is only 1%. So we're always looking, I'm always looking to improve anyway. So um, feedback from players, umpires, coaches is always a good thing. Indeed. I, I remember chatting to Mick Hunt and um, he was telling me that he normally asks the wicketkeeper because if you ask a, a batsman who's just been castled for a duck, he's not going to give you a very good answer, nor a, nor, nor a bowler that's been carted around the around the field. So, um, you know, obviously that feedback is is useful. We're, we're told that we're entering a new era of test cricket, particularly, and um, um, basball is the, is the phrase. <laughs> does, does that sort of alter the way that you might prepare pitches at all? I I, uh, I don't know really. It's hard. it's it's a funny one to think about now. Like you know, with basketball now, do you think you just try and go out and produce the flattest pitch you can, possibly sacrificing pace and carry? And but pace and carry is something the players always want. You know, they want the edges to uh, to carry. They want to be able to play through the line of the ball. So I think we'll we'll carry on as we are and just pr- try and produce the best cricket pitch we can. We don't want to overthink things because sometimes I think if you get too funky, uh, it might it might. Uh, fall back on you but um i'm optimistic that you know our pitches are moving forward and uh and hopefully it continues to do so obviously everybody whether it's the press or the television everybody's got a uh, a view on on the pitch and that that view may coincide with your thoughts on the pitch or it may not um how do you handle um any sort of press adverse press comment that might come your way yeah it's definitely it's got bigger and bigger as as time has gone on, hasn't it? And I totally understand that commentators have to fill eight or 10 hours when they're on and the pitch is always spoken about. And I don't think there's ever an interview when the pitch isn't spoken about. I've got, I'm fairly thick skinned, you know, with experience, you learn that. I, I, I was quite a hot headed young groundsman, but I got to a point where I said, life's too short to be angry all the time, really. And, you know, I think criticism is natural. It'll come with it, but, uh, I think, you know, you just as long as you're honest with yourself and you think, you know, is it is this true? You know, is it worthy of it or or if it's not and they're just talking about things. But unfortunately, comments from a player or a commentator just snowball, don't they? And they get bigger and bigger and bigger and they carry weight. And, you know, I could probably stand up every week and argue against somebody over it. But, you know, does it get me anywhere? No. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, it's part and parcel. I think it's part and parcel. And I worry at times about younger groundsmen coming in and, you know, if you haven't got a thick skin and when you're young, you do take things personally and cricket groundsmanship is such a personal thing because it's not just a job, you know, you put, you see your life and soul going into a particular pitch and um, you never want another groundsman to fail or be in a position where, you know, he's getting slagged off in the press or on television or anything like that. It's quite quite a close knit community, the community of of grounds professionals, uh, both not only in cricket but across soccer and tennis, of course, and and rugby. Um, 
How much value do you find in, in, in comparing notes with your fellow grounds professionals? Yeah, oh, immensely. Um, you know, just within the first class system, we do have a head groundsman WhatsApp group that, you know, I think every day there's somebody on there either chatting, supporting or asking advice. So, you know, you're always learning in this. And I think if you say you're not learning, you know, you're, you're you know, you're, you're lying to yourself in a sense. And we, I try and do go around other venues and just have a look because. And that gives you an idea what other guys, what other techniques uh, the other guys are using. And uh, it's always helpful. Indeed. And not only cricket, presumably you go to other other stadiums and grounds. Try to, um, you know, I've always an open invitation for Wembley to go there. Their guys have been here to have a look around. Uh, I've been over to Wimbledon to meet Neil Stubbley and a couple of times we've had a good look around there. And, you know, it's really, it's real eye opener as well. And, my guys don't get around much, so I'm hoping that we can have a pre-season trip down to maybe Chelmsford or somewhere and they can see the other side of the coin and see what groundsmanship really is about. So I think, yeah, I would urge anyone to go out and have a look at other grounds and venues. It's, uh, it's a fantastic way to learn. And you... Um... Uh, you, you, you live above the shop, don't you, In uh, at, at Lord's? I mean, apart from lockdown, when you probably had the biggest front garden and back garden in, 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 in London, how do you enjoy that? What's it like? It's, re- it's really good. I was, you're probably a bit apprehensive at the start because you probably think, oh, I hope no one's going to be knocking on my door in the middle of the night because an alarm is going off or anything like that. But the club has got a great structure uh, to deal with that. And uh, listen, the commute obviously is fantastic. Get my back eight and into the office. With a young family, London's London's great. We're in a great area. Uh, so there's been no downsides to it as of yet. Oh, great. Well, look, I really do thank you today, Carl, for your time. Um, it, lastly, if there's if there's one sports facility, one stadium, one ground, if you weren't, I mean, you can't get much higher than than Lords in terms of the pinnacle of cricket. But um, is there a, is there a ground that you say, oh gosh, if I wasn't in cricket, I'd love to look after that? I don't know really because I've I've always worked in cricket, uh, and, and I've got a great passion for cricket groundsmanship. I you know I'm obviously biased, but it is the most challenging of all surfaces to get right. Uh, getting back to the, you know, being critiqued, you know, they don't talk about a rugby pitch or a, a football pitch as much as they do a cricket pitch. People always do ask me in interviews, you know, what are you going to do after, after Lords? And I, nothing really, you know, <laughs> hopefully I'm here till I retire. Got I a few do... more World Cups to fit in yet. Yeah? Well, exactly. I, I don't think I'll do 49 years like Mick did, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I've never really thought about it. You know, you, you, you'll probably look around the world and venues like Wimbledon or the MCG or places like that. But, you know, when I get up in the morning and I'm sat in the roller and the sun's just coming up over, you know, the Edridge stand shining on the pavilion, there's nothing better than that. Wonderful. I don't think anything will beat it. Wonderful. Well, look, Carl, thank you very much indeed. I really do appreciate your time. And uh, uh, we're approaching the cricket season now. We're recording this in the beginning of February. So uh, presumably it's all hands to the deck at the moment to, to get everything ready. And, um, and, and thank you very much for your time. It, it's been really good. Thank you. No, you're more than welcome. Thank you. Well, my sincere thanks to Carl for that insight into his background, uh, his love of the job and pride in pushing the boundaries of new technology in the traditional and often misunderstood skill of turf management. It also proves, once again, that the route from grassroots to the pinnacle of sport is achievable for anyone with the passion and will to succeed. I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. And this is... Inside Agriturf. <laughs>